The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. It's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 34 to 46. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. And he shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account, and he said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to give them, I will give it. And to them, I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And then you answered me, We have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, and you would not listen. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. So you remained at Kadesh many days, the days that you remained there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Keith's. My name is Will Nettleton. I'm one of the pastors here. We are delighted to have you with us this morning, especially if you are a guest or visiting with us. A special welcome to you. Thank you for being with us this morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. And by way of reminder, Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses delivers to Israel as they're on the verge of entering the promised land. They have left Egypt. God has delivered them from slavery. And they've spent the last 40 years, due to their disobedience, wandering in the wilderness. And Moses is hammering home over and over and over again in this book that the people, they, they have an opportunity to do something that their parents did not do. They have an opportunity to trust God. They have an opportunity to trust God, to remember what he has promised them and what he has called them to. Moses is inviting them throughout this book to renew their commitment to the covenant that God made with them. 
And that is actually why we here at Lookout are studying this great book and this season of renewal during this three-year renew campaign that we are in. We are praying and seeking renewal. We also want to remember what God has promised us and what he has called us to. And so that's why we are jumping into this great Old Testament book. In chapter one, Moses is recounting to the current generation, the second generation out of Egypt, how they got here. How did we get to this place? You are standing on the edge of the promised land, Moses tells them, because your parents, when they were on the edge of the promised land, failed to go in. They failed to go in and receive the land that God was giving them. And last week we watched as Moses told the first part of that story. And we were reminded that covenant renewal requires that we remember our rebellion and God's faithfulness. This week, as we pick up part two of that story, we're going to see that covenant renewal requires two more things. It requires that we remember that our disobedience has consequences. We're going to see that in verses 34 through 40. And then secondly, in verses 41 through 46, covenant renewal also requires that we remember, and I would add, resist our temptation to presume upon God. Our disobedience has consequences and we must remember our temptation and resist it to presume upon God. In our passage, Moses recounts how Israel tried to settle for half-hearted repentance. Half-hearted repentance. They tried to obey God on their own terms and their own timing. And as we will see, that made a bad situation so much worse. And there's a lesson here for us as well. We cannot have renewal, we won't have renewal if our own repentance is half-hearted, if our obedience is on our own terms. So with all of that in place, let me pray and we'll ask God to send his Holy Spirit and bless our time together in his word. Let us pray. Lord, your word is no empty word. It is no vain word. It is our very life. You have promised that it never returns to you void, but it always accomplishes the purpose that you have for it. So we ask God, would you keep that promise this morning? Would you accomplish your purposes among us? Jesus, you said that you are our good shepherd and that your sheep know your voice. I pray that you would help us to know it this morning and to follow it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, like many a teenage boy before and after me, I struggled when I was in high school to get out of bed on time. I know that I was probably the first and only to ever do that. I struggled to get out of bed on time. On school mornings, my mom would try everything. There was yelling, there was flashing of lights, there was a brief season where a squirt bottle was, in my opinion, overused. But usually what worked the best was threats. That's what worked the best on me. But even then, it usually took three or four times until my mom would finally say, that's it. That's it. You're grounded. No going out this weekend. At which point I would jump out of bed and I'd be like, I'm up, I'm up, I'm up. Please, please, please don't ground me. And I remember my mom saying, I'm glad you're up. You're still grounded. You should have listened the first time. I'm glad you're up. You're still grounded. You should have listened the first time. 
You should have listened the first time. It's not a bad summary of Moses' point to the people in our passage. God had told them to go into the promised land. He had told them that he himself was going before them and would fight for them. And they refused to go in. At the end of our passage, when they partially realize the error of their ways, they decide, okay, now we're ready to go. I'm up, I'm up. I'm ready to go in. And God says, do not do that. Do not do that. I will not be with you. And Israel goes anyway. And Moses tells us they are soundly defeated by the people of the land. We're going, we're going, Lord. We're ready, we're ready. And God says to them, in effect, no. No, you should have listened the first time. You missed your window to obey that command. There's a new command now. And they found that their disobedience had real consequences. So let us go back through and work through the passage together as we look at that, remembering that covenant renewal requires that we remember that disobedience has real consequences. Look back at verses 34 and 35 with me. Moses says, the Lord heard your words and was angered. And he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. As I mentioned, we're picking back up in the middle of the story. Israel has already decided not to go into the promised land. Even though Moses had told them, God's promised to go before you. He's gonna fight for you just like he did Egypt. And in verse 32, Moses tells us, yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. And now here in verses 34 and 35, we get the Lord's answer. How the Lord responds to Israel's disobedience. He's angry. And he tells them, none of this generation is going in. Their sin has dramatic consequences. The very land that they had been promised that God meant to deliver into their hands is now off limits to them, to this generation. Their disobedience has severe generational consequences. I think it's tempting for us in our current moment to give that a cursory reading and to think, good grief. God's being a little, a little heavy-handed, isn't he? What about, I thought he was a God of second chances. What's this about banishing them from the promised land? But remember what we looked at last week. Moses told them back in verse 20, the Lord is giving us the land. Let's go get it. And their response in verse 22 is, well, hang on. Let's, let's send spies in. Let's check it out. Let's do some due diligence here. Make sure we know what we're getting into. And Moses could have stopped them right there and said, spies, the Lord of heaven and earth said green light. He said, I'm with you. I will fight for you. What else do we need to know? But Moses doesn't say that. He says, okay, we'll send the spies in. The spies go in, they check it out. And in verse 25, they come back and say, yep, it is a good land. God is giving it to us. And what do the people do? Do they say, wow, it's just what the Lord told us. Let's go in, let's take the good land he's giving us. Of course not. They rebelled, they wouldn't go in. In fact, they say, the Lord hated us. Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of Egypt. Think about that for a moment. Because the Lord hated us, he brought us out of Egypt. I mean, think about what they've seen. God delivered them from slavery. He heard their cry and delivered them. He drowned their enemy who had far superior military might in the sea. 
When they were hungry in the wilderness, he provided bread so they wouldn't starve. And their conclusion is, yeah, he did that because he hates us. He did that because he hates us. It's a miracle of God's sovereign mercy that he doesn't just wipe these ungrateful people off the face of the earth and just start over. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? He lets Moses continue to remind them of the truth. Just look back a few verses before our passage. If you got your Bibles open in verses 30 and 31 to what Moses said to them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Moses tells them God carried you as a man carries his son. Remember when I was a kid and we would be driving home in our minivan late at night from something and I would often as a little kid fall asleep and I have these memories of my dad, I'm sure many of you have similar memories of my dad not wanting to wake me up, gently kind of picking me up out of my car seat and carrying me in and putting me to bed. As I got older, really too big for that anymore, right? Too heavy for that anymore. Sometimes as we would pull into the driveway, even though I was awake and could get out on my own, put myself to bed, sometimes I would still pretend that I was asleep. I would pretend to be asleep because I wanted my dad to carry me in. And it's crazy, when I, when I think back about myself as a kid, I was definitely that little boy who hated how little he was. I was little, littler than all of my friends. I hated anything that made me feel like a baby. And so I really, as I look back, I don't know why I would pretend to be asleep, pretend to be a littler child that I was so that my dad would carry me in just as if I was still that little boy that he used to put to bed. But I did do that. There was something powerful about being in my father's arms that I did not want to lose. Of course, as I got older, that changed. I became a teenage boy who, when his dad would try to hug him, would say, touch me. Don't touch me. Moses tells Israel that their God carried them like a father carrying his son. And as they are on the edge of the promised land, it is as if God is saying, come on, I can carry you. I can take you in. And they're saying, don't touch me. Don't touch me. That is where we are in our passage when God finally says, okay, fine. Have it your way. None of you will go in. I point that out to say this is not capricious judgment from God. This is not a God rashly pouring out wrath on a people who are, who are begging him for a second chance. These people have trampled on his tender patience over and over and over again until he finally says, okay, enough. Have it your way. But notice, don't miss, even in condemning that generation, even in his anger, God immediately makes a few exceptions. Did you catch that? Look back at verse 36. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. And then skip down to 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, 
who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So who gets to go in? Caleb and Joshua, if you remember the story, they are the only two spies of the 12 that when they were sent out into the promised land, they were the ones who came back and said, we should go in and take it. God will be with us. We should go in and take it. All of the others were saying, no, the walls are too big. The people are too big. We have no shot. But Caleb and Joshua trusted the Lord and God rewards that and says, they will go in. And the children too small to know what was going on, they are gonna go in as well. In fact, those are the very ones that Moses is talking to in our passage. The ones that he's retelling the story to are those children who are about to be permitted to go in. And so it's worth noting, even in the midst of this evil generation that God is pouring out his wrath on, that he is punishing. God graciously preserves a remnant, a core. He preserves Caleb and Joshua and the little ones are gonna go in even while the rest refuse to. Before we move on, it's worth just considering what does that mean for us this morning? In his book on heaven and hell called The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those to whom God finally says, okay, thy will be done. Willful, persistent disobedience has its consequences, but God is not rashly pouring out his wrath as some sort of capricious, heavy-handed God of myth. As the Bible so often repeats, he is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He is the God who wants to carry us like a loving father. And so the question for us this morning is, will we receive that love and fatherly care? Or will we, like Israel of this generation, say, don't touch me? Can I ask you this morning where you are? Are you, have you looked to the God of heaven and earth and said, thy will be done. I am a sinner in need of your salvation. I was wrong and I need you. Have you said thy will be done to God and found in him a loving heavenly father? Or are you one of those people for whom God will have to say on the day of judgment, okay, thy will be done. You have it your way. It's not too late to turn this morning to Jesus, to a God who longs to carry you as a heavenly father. So covenant renewal requires that our, we remember that our sin, our disobedience has consequences. But it also requires, we see this at the end of the passage, that we remember and resist our temptation to presume upon God. Look back at verse 40 with me where God gives Israel their punishment. Moses tells them, as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. It tells them to turn around and to go back. And it seems like momentarily that Israel gets what's happening. It seems like they're going to turn the right direction. Look back at verse 41 as they respond. They say, we have sinned against the Lord. A great start, always a great place to start. We have sinned against the Lord. But it quickly heads downhill, doesn't it? We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord commanded us. That sounds good unless you realize that there's been an update to that commandment that they have missed. God said, turn around. He said, head back towards the Red Sea. You see what's happening, right? 
Now that God tells them not to fight, they wanna go up and fight. When the Lord commanded them to go into the promised land and promised to be with them and to fight for them, they wouldn't budge. But all of a sudden, now that he's forbidden them from going in, they can't stay away. They can't resist trying to go in. And God could let them do, he could just say, fine, go, go see what happens. But God does not do that in his kind, generous mercy. He warns them. Look back at verse 42. What does he say? Say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. God says, don't do it. I will not be with you. And Israel goes anyway. It goes poorly for them. Look back at verse 44. Moses says, the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. Fascinating image that Moses uses there of bees. They're being chased by bees. One of the commentators I read this week had a great zinger. He said, it turns out the land flowing with milk and honey has some bees who can sting in it. Pretty good. Commentaries are usually pretty boring. It was nice to find a, a good joke in there. They go in and they're defeated because God was not with them. Israel comes back from that dis disastrous plan and verse 45 tells us they are weeping, but the Lord is not listening. And we get the sense that these are crocodile tears that the Lord is not listening to. Because this whole section is rife with incomplete repentance and incomplete obedience. Even as they say, we have sinned against the Lord, they recognize that. They refuse to obey his commands. They try to obey the ones they want to obey when they want to obey them. And Moses tells us what the problem is explicitly in verse 43. He says, you rebelled against the command of the Lord. And here's the key word, presumptuously went up. They presumed. They presumed that the Lord didn't mean what he said. They presumed that they would be strong enough without him after they had refused to go in with him. They presumed that simply confessing their sin, just naming it, was enough without then finishing the act of repentance. Our catechism phrases it this way, that repentance is a, is a turning in grief and hatred of our sin unto God. We turn, we hate our sin. Seems like they almost got that part right. We turn to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And that's where they missed it. They didn't turn to God. They didn't purpose after new obedience. They tried to come up with their own plan. They tried to do it their way. They tried to let it be enough that they said they were sorry. I you to imagine for a moment that uh, after today's service, we go out into the parking lot and I'm parked near you and I reckon to your car after church today. And now imagine that there's a big crowd around. There's no question that it's my fault. Everyone saw it, everyone knows it. And as we get out of our cars, I rush over to you and I say, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so sorry. I was not paying attention, I was trying to get home. This is all my fault. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And internally, you're thinking like, who do we call to fire him again? Who is this that we call to get rid of him? But you decide, no, let me be gracious. After all, it is Sunday. This is the church parking lot. He is one of the pastors. I am a Christian. I will forgive him. And so you say, of course, of course, I forgive you. Let's just, you know, trade in insurance information. We'll get it all figured out. And imagine if in that moment, I said to you, hang on. Well, I mean, like surely we don't need to bring insurance into all this. 
God, I, I mean, I said I was sorry. You said you forgave me. What's all this about insurance? And of course, you would rightly say what? Uh, glad you're sorry. I do forgive you. Somebody needs to pay for my fender, right? Somebody needs to pay for this. Your forgiveness means that you were not going to let my actions destroy our relationship. But someone still had to pay for the damage. And I should not have been offended, right, if I noticed that in the next couple of Sundays, you don't park near me anymore. Right? Those would be the consequences of my negligence. Friends, the, the forgiveness that God gives us, that we give one another, does not preclude us experiencing the consequences of our sin. Forgiveness does not preclude us experiencing the consequences of our sin. Because of God's covenant faithfulness, those of us who are in Jesus Christ can never lose our relationship with him. This is that glorious doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We are gonna make it because he never lets us anything snatch us out of his hands. But he will, in his sovereign fatherly providence, permit us to experience the consequences of our sin. Like a good parent who lets their kids experience the consequences of their actions so they can learn from them. God will do the same thing. There are so many examples of this in the Bible. I think of David and Bathsheba, right? David has the affair with Bathsheba. He has her husband killed. He is, she gets pregnant by David and she, he is confronted by Nathan the prophet and he repents. He writes that glorious Psalm of repentance, Psalm 51. It's a model for how we ought to all hate our sin and repent. But God causes the child in Bathsheba's womb, after the, actually after the child is born, to get sick. And David goes to God and he pleads, pleads for the child. He fasts. And God says, no. The child dies. David, David is forgiven, but he experiences the consequences, the wreckage of his sin. In fact, we don't even really need to look further than our own passage in the scriptures. Did you notice that Moses was listing who would go into the promised land? He lists Joshua, Caleb, and the little ones. But there's one notable exception. One person that we might think, oh, I bet he's going to go in, who in fact does not. Did you catch who it was? Look back at verse 37. Moses says, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you also shall not go in there. It's Moses. Moses does not get to go into the promised land. Moses, the faithful leader and intercessor of God's people. And we're told why here, but also we get more color commentary on it in Numbers chapter 20. At one point in their wilderness journey, Israel has no water. This has happened a couple of times. It's happened in Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, God tells Moses, strike that rock with your staff and that will provide water. And then it happens again in Numbers 20, they come to another place where they're out of water and Moses and Aaron ask God what to do. And God tells them this time, speak to a rock and water will come out. But Moses doesn't do it. Numbers 20 tells us Moses doesn't simply speak to the rock. He strikes it just like he did in Exodus 17. In fact, he strikes it twice. 
And water does come out, but God is clear with Moses. That action was a sign of unbelief. You did not believe in me. You believed in the staff and you angrily struck the rock and so you will not go in to the promised land. It's this strange exchange. Why does God forbid Moses from entering the promised land? It seems like such a small thing. He just hit the rock instead of speaking to it. Last time you told him to hit it, what's the big deal? I think the answer is the same as it is for Israel in our passage. Moses presumed. He presumed that he could do it his way. And the big deal is that he treated God's word lightly as if it didn't matter, as if it could be obeyed on his terms and in his timing. And so God allows him to experience the consequences of his sin. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. So what do we do with that? Because up to this point, and even as we finish it, there's not a whole lot of good news in this passage, is there? At least on the surface. We have to remember that our sin has consequences, okay. We have to remember not to presume upon God, okay. But sometimes I do that. Like, is there any hope for me? Two little glimmers of hope that I want to point out as we close. One, look back at verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Those of you who have read the rest of your Bibles might guess where I'm going with this. Joshua is pointing forward to another one named Yeshua. That's Joshua's name in Hebrew, Yeshua. There's another Yeshua that's coming, isn't there? The whole New Testament is about this Yeshua, the one who's going to come, who like this Joshua did, is going to cause true Israel to inherit a true and better promised land. So yes, we can have hope, even as our sin has consequences. We can remember that because of Jesus, we have hope that our failure is not the end of the story. That's one little glimmer of hope in our passage. One more. Deuteronomy is not the last time that we're gonna see Moses in the Bible. At the end of this book, he is going to die. He's not gonna go into the promised land. But if you were with us as we were studying the gospel of Luke this year, one of the last passages we looked at before we turned our attention to Deuteronomy was Luke chapter nine. And in Luke chapter nine, there's an event where Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you remember that story in that passage, Luke tells us that a important Old Testament character shows up too, Moses and Elijah. And it's interesting what Luke says, they show up to talk to Jesus about his departure, his exodus, is the Greek word, exodus. That Jesus is going to lead his people out of slavery. And Moses is the one talking to him about it on the Mount of Transfiguration. They talk about what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, namely his death and his resurrection. So is there any hope in this passage? Yes, Moses doesn't get to see the promised land, but he does get to see Jesus. Failure was not the end of his story. Consequences were not the end of his story. And so there's hope for us as well this morning, even as we must accept that there are consequences for our sin. It's not enough for us to say, I'm sorry, and hope that we will avoid everything that comes after that, that that just gets us off the hook. Sin still has a ripple effect in this world and we will often experience those consequences. But because of Jesus Christ, those consequences will not crush us. 
they will be the way that God continues to form us more into the image of his son. Because we can look forward to a day when we will be led into that true promised land. When Jesus will wipe away every single one of our tears, when we will receive new bodies, when we will no longer be able to sin against him, when there will be no consequences left. Because we will be with him in that true promised land. So this morning, as we conclude, friends, we have to remember true repentance requires us accepting that there are gonna be consequences for our sin. But those consequences are not the final story. So let us not presume upon God. Let us do true repentance. Let us turn to him with grief and hatred of our sin. And then let us go after full obedience. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have provided for us, Jesus. The true and better Joshua. The one who causes us to go in and to inherit that land that we would never have chosen for ourselves, that we would never have obediently followed you into on our own. I pray this morning, Lord, for those perhaps who are struggling to say thy will be done, would you open their eyes to your glorious grace that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Would you this morning invite them to turn to you before you say to them, thy will be done. And for those of us who have turned to you in repentance and in faith, Lord, would you help us again not to presume upon your grace, to accept your fatherly discipline, trusting that this is not the end of the story, that there is a true and better land coming for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.